between prepping ingredients, setting the table, and planning your tomorrow. Sometimes you need an extra hand with dinner. Delta Faucet is here to help. Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot with Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology and fill it with the perfect amount of water. Done. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to see how voice IQ can fill your dog's bowl, wash your hands, and more. Hey, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. This is Authentically You, social interaction for the mind and soul. You're listening to Society Bites Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Himmer, along with Sherry, my wife. And for the next 25 minutes, we're going to talk about healing and growth from the inside out. Remember, you are 100% responsible for your happiness, joy, and well-being. So, Sherry, today's topic is um, kind of motivated from a book that you introduced me to called Educated. Tell me just a little bit about the book. And so that'll kind of give us an idea why we're going to talk about the, the topic today is the Pygmalion effect. Well, the book Educated you know, came out at least in the last year, um, quickly hit the bestseller list. And it's a, it's a memoir and it touches on a lot of really interesting questions um, in terms of how does someone process and heal from maybe traumatic events in their life? And in this particular memoir, I try, you know, touches on, um, you know, potential abuse um, that happens in a family and, and, and very much so unintentional. And but the processing that comes out into how do you deal with your memories and perspectives that are created from really rough experiences. It's that perspective. And one of the scenes in the book that really hit home was when she broke up with her boyfriend and really couldn't explain why. It's just that she did. So it affected her in some of her relationships as a young adult. Because of how she perceived herself, right? How she perceived herself, how she perceived she'd been treated. And we take our own experiences with this and form our own beliefs around ourselves. We've talked about that as being a real big core of, you know, how do you process all that to become your real authentic self, not just the product of bad things that have happened to you by way of other people, right? or even bad things that happen because of your own bad decisions. You can process your own self-induced trauma in a sense, or, you know, challenges well, that you bring upon yourself. And that's kind of where we want to go with it. This is not just the, um, how it affects you for yourself, you know, your perception of yourself, but what about others' perceptions? Or let me reframe that, how you perceive others. There's a quote here by Charles Kettering I want to say. It's, high achievement always takes place in the framework of high expectation. But the opposite's also true. Low expectations undermine achievement. In other words, those who expect less get less. What about what we expect of ourselves? What about what we expect of others? Let me throw out a question here to, to set the framework. <clears throat> a question I had from multiple clients is, why can't I just hide my true feelings about someone I don't like? In other words, if they're frustrated with their husband, and this is not unusual, they can't seem to be able to hide um, the fact that they're, they're angry at them. 
even though they say my words are neutral, um, I'm doing everything this way, but they're really not. There's so much more to it than just that. So we want to kind of talk about, one, how did the Pygmalion effect get there? What does it mean? How does it impact our behavior with others and with ourselves? And, and then go over the studies that we have from Rosenthal and explain how this is impacting us not only in the workplace, but in the education system. So the Pygmalion effect, or what they call the Rosenthal effect, is kind of this phenomenon that uh, higher expectations lead to an increase in performance. It comes from some, some this Greek myth of Pygmalion. What, what was that myth? Well, the old Greek myth is that, um, I can't remember his name, but he created this statue um, of the ideal woman and then prayed to the gods that she would, that he could find love like that when he came home, found that she was real and human and, and mm. found perfect love. And, and so it's this idea that you create something out of your belief or your bias. And um, we often do that with, for the negative and for the positive out of our own perceptions um, and turn those perceptions into expectations. And so you brought up this whole word of expectations and that is such a loaded word when we talk about relationships because expectations can lead to positive outcomes, but they can also be detrimental. Right, uh, absolutely. And um, in terms of being misguided and um, not allowing others around you to be authentic. So expectations also have to be, um, you know, realistic and grounded and um, not just a pipe dream. Like the Pygmalion story sounds very pipe dream that he creates a statue. But it does have this effect that what we believe tends to come to life, like in the myth. Well, they use the term self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And that's often for the positive and for the negative. So I've kind of coined a similar thing called immaculate perception. Um, And I'll have you just by definition, what is immaculate perception as it's defined in this context? And this is a term we've used on previous segments, but... And, it, and it's a Dr. Hammer term yeah. um, that it's one's belief bias based on experiential blindness. So in other words, you have a bias based upon the experiences that have had that have happened to you. So you create a belief. Right. And you say experiential blindness, which means that your experience could change your bias so much that you'll be blind to other things that are part of reality. Right. OK, so it is marked by prediction error. And prediction error. And that's kind of like the expectation that leads you the wrong way. Yeah, and prediction error is another way of saying um, reactive behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, We have now, we've learned in a a very beautiful written book um, that came out last year called Emotions that we don't really react to things going on. We erroneously predict the future based upon what just happened from about 10,000 different sources. And that would be a great segue back to um, Tara Hill uh, Westover's um, experience in her book, Educated with the Horrible Things That She Experiences in Childhood and took those into a budding young adult romance. Even into her school, Mm -hmm. into every social interaction she had, she brought this experiential bias or her immaculate perception. And she would logically explain this is what was going on. But no, that can't happen because of this. And and for those who haven't read it, it's a good read. Not only is it extremely well written and compelling, but it really shows the process of, of 
going back and, you know, the power of journaling, and this is not like reading a journal at all, but her processing for the sake of herself, for the sake of her own healing. Well, yeah, she's trying to find some sort of grounding on which she could walk through life without it constantly being full of of, uh, fear, uh, pain. Well, and the contradictions between reality and what her home life is. And her perception, her immaculate perception. And that's kind of where it it got me going. Remember, and just for those of you listening, we were on a cruise this earlier this year. And, you know, you have at sea days. And so we always bring books to read. Mm -hmm. And you were. I was reading the book last summer. You were reading the book. And I just remember um, Sherry would be audible. She'd just go, oh, my gosh, no. Or, uh. It's a hard book to not gasp <clears throat> while you're reading because it will strike at your core yeah, that it, these experiences. It pulls at your heart. It does. I was just talking to a, a friend of ours who had just finished the book, and he says, well, where are you in the book? And I told him, and he goes, oh, don't you just want to get her out of there? Don't you just, just pull it? You just want to help her just take her out of that, that place of that home? And that's what it will do for you. But wow, is it enlightening. It just kind of gives you an idea. So let's, great question. Let's finish the definition there. Okay. Um, so it's marked by mm-hmm. prediction error mm-hmm. and illusionary beliefs. It is a space where assumptions are not questioned, but rather considered as absolute truth. And these are personal assumptions. It is who is right at all costs. It is without empathy or compassion. And so who is right means that we're not looking at anything to be principle-based. It's based on those perceptions of what well, we have. Well, going back to educated, um, Tara Westover did a really good at processing what immaculate perceptions were being handed over to her by family mm-hmm. and then be able to process into what was reality and what was more truthful and, and her pathway to um, being able to make sense out of truths. Um, and she's still very much on that journey. And yet her family, you know, had truth in them, but there were certain players um, who were, had to be right at all cost. And that's where empathy was thrown out the door. And it was detrimental. So there's a, I call it a scene as though it's a movie, but there, to me it was a scene because it played out vividly in my mind. She's in Cambridge mm-hmm. and um, she's with the professor who takes them. They got a, a special tour She's there on a, a special class, wasn't she was, it? She was awarded a fellowship. A fellowship. Yeah. <clears throat> so she's over there with fellow students from her same university. And remember, she's not dressing like anyone else. Everyone Maybe else everyone else was dressed, you know, properly. And Cambridge is very high society. And she's not. She's just wearing a sweatshirt and some jeans and a pair of tennis shoes. And everyone else is in stilettos. Because that's all she had. That's all she had. And so... Everything about her environment in that moment, she was primed to be uncomfortable. It was way outside her comfort zone. When they went to this uh, cathedral and they took her, took all of them way up top uh, to the, uh, the spire, she got up on the ledge and started walking the ledge with her arms outreached. And there's for the listeners who haven't read the book, because she grew up working in a scrap heap pile for her well, father. Because her experience with roofing. And, and with roofing, she was constantly in that position. Mm-hmm. She got up and was walking along the like precipice with her arms outstretched and her head to the sky as though she's taking this all in. And the professor walked over to her and made an interesting point. He said, you know, when we were down in the banquet hall, you were hunched over. 
and you were cowering. Look at all the, your associates right now. And these are all the, the very well-dressed uh, girls along with her who were couched against the wall with their heads down trying to hold for safety. And he, he pointed out the contrast. Look what just happened. You went from a, a world that you weren't comfortable in and they were to a world that you're comfortable in and they're not. And, and he said to her, how do you do that? He says, you don't fight the wind because the wind was blowing. You're in the wind. You're just there. So often in, in this world, in this life, we don't recognize we're in the world and we perceive it in such a way that it's harmful. So we're going to move back a little bit to the study. So Rosenthal or Rosenthal got together, Robert Rosenthal got together with Lenore Jacobson, and they did this study. And they wanted to know if teachers who were led to expect that there were enhanced performers in their class would treat them differently and what impact it would have upon those students. So Rosenthal argued that the biased expectancies could affect reality, and there, here's where we get the term, and create self-fulfilling prophecies. So they went to a place, it's in San Francisco, in California, and they went up to a teacher whose name was Beverly Cantello, and uh, they lied to her. Now, at first, when, when Miss Cantello found out about this, she was pretty upset. But when she understood what they were doing, her, her frustration quickly changed because she saw what was going on. So this is what they did. They did this from K to, I think, from first to sixth graders. But the big change was in the first and second graders. They had them all take an IQ test. It came out of Harvard. Um, all six grades, so it would have been, I think it was K through six, um, took the, the before and after test. And so they, then after they took the initial test, they put all the students' names in a hat. And they drew out the students' names randomly. And there was a certain percentage for each class. The teacher was then given the names of those who were said to be um, intellectual bloomers. I believe it was 20%. Yeah, I think you're school. right. And so since they were made aware of these potential bloomers, they wanted to know what impact that would have upon the students during the course of the year. And by the way, this wasn't the first research done this way. The first one was done, this was in the 60s, was done in 1911 with a horse called Clever Hans. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, I've read that study as well. <laughs> so um, in 1911, they had this horse called Clever Hans who gained notoriety because he was alleged to be able to read and spell and do math, all with, you know, stomping. With the stomping of a foot. Yeah. It's interesting how he actually was able to just amaze people Well, with that. They yeah. argue how, you know. They argue that Clever Hans um, simply observed. Well, go ahead. Yeah, he would observe the response of people, and people without even doing anything would be more intense. That's it. Yep. Of their focus about mm -hmm. the right answer, and an animal can read, oh, yeah. can smell, can sense. There's can that sense. energy yeah, issue, well, right? And it's like it's a chemical that people give off, and like what they're thinking creates a chemical, and an animal can read that and could pick the right answer. And all Hans did, well, according to the arguments. So sometimes we think about the emotional intelligence of our pets are greater than ourselves. 
You said that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have an ongoing dispute about this with my dog, with not my dog. That was a, an error with Sherry's dog and Sam's dog. <clears throat> okay, so the clever Hans was argued to have said that he could read the body language or the energy of the humans around him, right? Well, what do we give off right. when um, we're talking to people? So if I'm a student or I'm, I'm a teacher and I have these, these students in my class, do I treat them differently if I perceive that they're going, that they're these intellectual bloomers? And or so, not. Or, and the, that's the opposite right. end of it, right? Well, this is what he found. Um, he said there were four areas, four key factors that could help explain how teachers' expectations influence students. So rather than, you know, listen to this as just a study on teachers, make it a study on self as you're just listening to this. Here are the key factors. So one is the climate. So is the climate safe? And I'm going to take that further into what I've learned. Is the climate neutral? The greatest way to protect anybody is to create a space of neutrality with no bias. It's like being disinterested, not biased is all that means. So the number two but is you don't in, mean disinterested as in ignoring or not paying attention to. No, it's just it we're separated, separated from a bias. yourself from what you're intersecting <clears throat> with that person. Yeah. So if you were to if I were to meet you for the first time and and I were to say, well, Sherry, what do you do for a living? And you say, well, I'm, I'm a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And I were to go, oh, that is so awesome. That is just amazing. That's not a position of disinterested. That's a very biased position. Well, lower disinterest often connotes no interest. So I'm not sure if it's our best term. But it's accurate. Neutral is the best term. Hence, I give the, the caveat. Right. It means a not, uh, from a non-biased position. So if we go to that non-biased position, when we talk to people, we have a higher probability that we will be able to foster a healthy relationship. For example, in that space that's alleged to be neutral, if I say that's awesome, I've just set you up that you need to say something to me in return so you can maintain your awesomeness. I will then influence that conversation by my positive judging. It's still a judgment. Mm -hmm. It's just more on the positive side. And what happens in our society today, because the word awesome is used ubiquitously, we are no longer moving into a space of authenticity. Hmm. And so we've lost that ability to be neutral. So number one is the climate. Number two is input. Um, when they perceived the student to be that um, intellectual bloomer, they would have more energy and they would have greater latitude with that child than the output. For example, and that's the way the student gives the output back. If I perceive you to be a late bloomer or the intellectual bloomer and I ask you a question and it wasn't exactly where we needed to go, but I perceived you as a late bloomer. I keep saying that. I don't mean that. I'm the late bloomer. They're an intellectual bloomer. <laughs> I, as a teacher, would give you latitude to figure out the answer. I'd give you a longer time frame and I might even give you cues along the way. But what if the opposite's true? Right. So teachers will often um, and I and I would say not just teachers because I come from that world, but um, people in relationships, depending on their perception of somebody, will overstep into the scaffolding 
What does that mean? That's well, not going to mean anything. We're talking about giving support, giving somebody to, to help somebody. I mean, parent, let's take this down to the parenting level. If we perceive our child in any degree helpless, we're going to jump in and support and support and support. And not saying that there aren't supports that are necessary or needed, but it's knowing when to release, release, release. And know that the goal is to release support so that they can grow up to be independent um, contributing adults in society and that, 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 and keeping that as the goal in mind rather the goal of how much of a parent can I do? Right. You've just explained the helicopter syndrome, right? right? Where they cannot seem to cut the umbilical cord thinking that, you know, I've got to protect my child. And as they go into college, then they become the lifeboat right. parent who are literally saving them from their own demise and not allowing them to have latitude latitude to discover a little bit on their own. Well, there's no way a child can learn without falling down. When our two-year-olds, now they're about two when they start walking. No. no one, one. Sorry, it's been a while. <laughs> and we had some before one. So. Oh, really? Yeah, we had we had some early bloomers. I was a late some bloomer. Some gifted walkers. <laughs> I just learned. No, I don't think you were a late walker. So the idea is that if a child falls down, we don't protect the child from falling down. We encourage, we let the child fall down, and then we praise the child for trying. So we're praising them gritty for their grit initially, but somehow along the way when we start protecting them, you know, there are teachers, or sorry, there are parents who are constantly washing their children's hands wherever they go using the, the, Santa, the Santa wipes. That's not healthy. You've got to let them experience everything about it to build up the systems that would allow them to protect against the world in, in, in balance though we do in, in wash balance. Hands. we teach them to wash which was hands. part of the educated book right <laughs> yeah. she was taught not to not, not to wash your hands. hands which is really okay so one is climate is it safe space two is input three is output and, th and four is feedback in other words um, are they what kind of feedback are they giving are they are receiving etc so all of that played a role in his study so what they did is they they um they told the teacher, this is the students that you've got. And the first and second graders were the ones who had the highest uh, return on investment. They increased, uh, just, just to read it to you, um, over the next school year, the designated students at Spruce Elementary School in South San Francisco excelled just as predicted. The youngest of them made the most dramatic gains. On average, these first graders increased their IQ scores by more than 27 points. And they were simply chosen at random. Now, there's um, not everybody agrees with this. So there's naysayers. And so we've got to bring that, that out of it just so you understand that I don't think that this is any kind of proven thing, although I observe it a lot experientially from mine. So Robert Thorndike, who's an, edu he's an educational psychologist, is the critic. He's criticized this study, saying it doesn't have an effect. And he's illustrated why a number of functions in there um, would show that it's not necessarily a, a provable theory. As I've watched it, as I've observed it, what I'm what I'm starting to realize is, I think Thorndike's position came from a uh, a position that it's biased, that it's not. When if you come into there with a bias, yeah, it's going to have an influence. But if the teachers, I said that on, I said that wrong unbiased. It's impossible to, I think, in human nature to be unbiased towards somebody. 
And I think what, if I remember right, with Thorndike's research, it leads to more of getting to know your students for who they really are. Like you'll get notes or, you know, you'll get perceptions handed to you by somebody else, but get to know somebody more for who you're, that you can build a relationship, that that teacher to student relationship is is powerful, that you can build and help and teach from there. So being able to see people for who they are, and that leads to all relationships of being able to see and understand people and go to that understanding. So when I finish it up with this, we're out of time. The meta-analysis that Thorndike did or, or when they came back, as he said, when the teacher got to know them for two weeks and then was given that information, the impact was zero. So when they had their pre, uh, their immaculate perception already based upon what they thought the child was, this type of information didn't work. So they had to be primed first. And I think that's critical. When we first meet someone. So it separates that perception yeah, part. And yeah. what do we bring in? What What is that bias? And so, being aware of our biases, it comes back to that initial question of like, why can't we hide our true feelings? We need to be aware that what we think of someone else is often really a projection about ourselves. Of ourselves. Yeah. And no more is that seen in, in society than in the po- political world right now. Oh, wow. Where that is playing itself out. All right. So we're out of time. Thanks so much for listening. Um, that was a lot of fun, Sherry. So just remember... Our takeaways today is remember who you are and what your biases are and allow that to to transfer forward. Remember that in this idea of finding your own self, there's hope. You have all the resources in you to have great relationships. It's just learning what those biases are and being aware. And in our next segment, we are going to address that idea of being aware. Remember, perfect is a mistake that gets a retake. So thanks for listening. and We look forward to talking to you next time. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. 
Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.